0: Greetings and welcome to a special episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon at patreon.com slash We have multiple tiers for you to choose from, and every dollar that you give helps support the podcast and keep it going. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing an author of a book I greatly enjoyed. For Christmas, my wife had bought me the book An Irish Heart, which tells the tale of the small immigrant community that shaped Canada and Montreal called Griffintown. I really enjoyed this book. It was a fascinating read, and it helped give me a lot of information that I was able to use on the podcast for future episodes. So, I sat down to interview the author Sharon about her book and about Griffintown itself. So, I hope you enjoy this special episode of the podcast.
1: I kind of caught the end of an era. Um, there were there were so many characters there. It was um, a lot of the houses were smaller brick row houses, so a lot of the um, a lot of the living was out on the streets in the summer, people would bring chairs out, sit on the sidewalk hang from the windows um, people would walk around, and there were all these old timers telling amazing stories um, and at the other part, it was a real community, a real sense of community that focused around uh, St. Anne's Parish and the church and a very, um, rich parish in the activities. The priests had set up a, a St. Andrew and Men's Society, um, so there was, all through the ages there had been concerts and drama and debates, and so, um, I think as I said, I think I caught the end of an era, Never. it was a bit like, at the time, if you of you have seen the old Bells of St. Mary's movies, with priests and nuns with Irish brogues, mm-hmm. and, uh, the tough guys, tough size car, guys sitting on the corner. There are people like the famous Father Carney who used to sit on the steps of St. Anne's waving at taxis and entertaining the, the local kids. Um, we had a very colorful politician, a politician that I think his career there lasted 30, 40 years. Um, he was a former jockey. Um, prided himself on being carried out of the Quebec legislature three times, always in a battle with um, Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau. Uh, and there were people like um, Nellie Cowden, who was called the Queen of town kind of ironically, because this Queen of Griffintown might show up at a wedding with wearing her grey flannel slippers with holes cut out for... Um, for her bunions but at the same time if somebody was hungry and needed a meal you knew you could go to Nellie Howden. So there are all these stories and even uh, I sort of caught the end of the era. but some of the stories I was hearing from the elderly people in the neighborhood there were stories about floods and fires and plane crashes all within our our neighborhood of Griffin Town. People like I remember Jimmy MacArthur, a very elegant gentleman, pointing with his cane to the second window, second floor windows where the flood levels used to go. And I'm really thinking, well, um, did that really happen? And uh, it's all these questions that eventually uh, my curiosity led to, to, to figure out wanting to read about it. My uncle Frankie Doyle used to tell stories about being in school in April 1944, when the RAF bomber scooped down over the school, uh, it had it had encountered uh, uh, it had encountered engine problems, and it ended up crashing into a block of houses um, one street over, killing 14 people. Um, and there was all all these sort of uh, stories around all these events there's a story of Happy Furlong who everybody says oh yeah Happy He his life was saved by a bottle of beer because just before the plane crash he got a hankering for a pint, <laughs> wandered off from his room to buy a bottle of beer meanwhile if he had stayed and and uh, and skipped the bottle of beer he would have died in that plane crash <laughs> and there were legends, there's a legend of the headless woman um all of us, we were warned about the ghost of Mary Gallagher, a headless woman who haunted the intersection of William and Murray Streets. Um, That was based on an actual murder I later found out. um, um, Mary Gallagher was a a prostitute and um, a jealous rival um, um, chopped off her head in a flat in Griffintown in 1860s or 70s and threw the head in a bucket. And the Montreal papers at the time were splashed with this horrific crime. And people came from farm-wide to see the house of this happened. But it sort of descended by the time I, I came around, it was down to uh, the legend of the Headless Woman and all of us kids would run by that that intersection. <laughs> and there was humor too, like the the. Uh, became a favorite story of Father McEntee, a priest who grew up in the neighborhood. And then later, years after the church was pulled down and people were feeling quite sentimental about the neighborhood, he set up um, uh, ghost watches on the, the actual date of her murder on the on the grounds of the old church and, and they would have a, a mass and a party afterwards of course, after this <laughs> ghost watch. And Griffin was a paradox. Uh, outsiders at the time looked at us as a poor, rundown slum full of hooligans. A lot of people were afraid to walk walk the streets. And actually, I haven't even as late as I am when I was at university. Um, one night, a fellow from McGill walked me home, and uh, he told me later he was scared stiff as he passed this corner with these big tough guys hanging out there, going <laughs> like got to the corner i said oh hi pete hi how are you (laughs) but um it was sort of misunderstood at the same time residents kind of cherished the reputation it was a bit uncalled for although in the earlier days um there had been some um some real tough guys but but people were really sentimental about it and and um Loved it. And a lot of times, sing songs would end with a few verses of "Oh, take me back to Griffin Town, take me back to Griffin Town, the place I belong." So it's full of paradoxes. Um, and at the time, too, there were some people, a few of the snobbier people who lived in Griffin Town, would never admit to, if they were in another part of the city, that they were from Griffin Town, because it was had such a bad reputation. Right. The ironic thing is, is now, now that it's, it's just sort of a sea of high-rises and now they've stretched it three neighbourhoods beyond are calling themselves Griffintown because they've got art galleries
0: and
1: boutiques there oh, another another paradox was Firecracker Day um, they've had this in other places in Canada but people got really excited about um, Firecracker Day in Griffintown for weeks ahead of May 24th people would start stockpiling old furniture, newspapers, anything flammable in the, in the sheds. And on firecracker day, um, usually the young guys, teenagers, would pull us all out, with the tacit approval of most of the adults, and they put bonfires um, in the middle of the street. And the firemen would be going out, squenching one, squenching the other, and this is all considered great entertainment. <laughs> In by little old ladies would pull their rocking chairs out to the sidewalk and these little old ladies would be throwing firecrackers in. So, um, so, so that was pretty exciting. But then a week or two later, these same, um, what some people will call hooligans, um, were getting ready for the Corpus Christi procession. The guys who were lighting bonfires were now painting the shutters. Uh, little old ladies were making putting um Making altars and putting flowers under the altars for the for the procession for for Corpus Christi. So there were all these paradoxes that I found um, kind of um, uh, kind of amazing. Looking back on it, it was very um, very religious area. You would see a lot of people trailing off to six o'clock masses on the weekday mornings before going to work. Um, and St. Anne's Church, the Beloved Church, which had, was torn down, unfortunately, in 1970, um, became the place of um, Tuesday devotions, which, where some people said there were miracles happening. <laughs> um, and they, at, at the height of it, in, I guess in the 1950s would have been, of the one I remember, there were six services a day. And they would, the city put on extra buses to come down to the church, um, and people would be filling out their little request forms for what they wanted help with. Although, <laughs> a lot of young women who have a secret prayer that they didn't write down it would be, good Saint Anne, find me a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there was a lot of humor. I mean, it was, I don't want to play down the difficulties. There's. Poverty, but there was a pride in the poverty. I mean, everybody, you had to keep your house spotlessly clean. It didn't matter. Soap and water didn't cost anything, people would say. Um, but, and even though by the time I came around, there, it was still considered an Irish community, although, of course, a lot of other nationalities had moved in by then. But I remember sitting on the steps with my friends, and we were all trying. To argue who was the most Irish, and somebody say, "Oh, you can't be because your grandmother was Polish," or, but it, it somehow, even though um, it wasn't as homogeneous as in earlier years, it still felt very Irish. And St. Patrick's Day was huge. Mm-hmm. It was um, um, you always went home for St. Patrick's Day if you were away. Uh, St. Anne's would pull concerts in the hall, and these would be full plays uh, with dancers and singers, and um, and people would come to St. Anne's Hall from around the city for these plays that they would put on maybe every night for a week. Montreal, until this year, until this week, had the longest running parade in North America. They've never missed one since 18. 18- Twenty-four. I mean, some places had started them earlier, but there were breaks for various mm-hmm. reasons. <laughs> now, in 1918, um, the organizers of the Prairie the Irish community from all over Montreal decided that they would cancel the St. Patrick's Day Parade. After all, it was wartime. There was a conscription crisis going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, some Irish young men um, thought there might be conscription agents out looking for these young Irishmen who were trying to uh, be being scripted, conscripted because they didn't want to fight for England. Their loyalty still lay with, with Ireland. Um, yeah, um, the men of Town, the members of the St. Anne's Young Men Society, defied the decree, put on their top coat, their, their dress coats, their top hats and shamrocks, and walk the parade route to keep the continuity. <laughs> so I'm fascinated to see this year, and my brothers actually are members of um, the United Irish Societies, the organization who in Montreal right now run the parade. And while everywhere in Ireland, New York, Boston, they've canceled the parade, in Montreal they're saying they're postponing it.
0: <laughs>
1: so I don't, <laughs> um, it's just, Really sad. I guess they don't want to break this record as the longest running parade. So I know we might be celebrating it in July. Uh, The um, St. Anne's Young Men's Society um, would also put on their top hats and top coats and form a procession every spring um, to the Black Rock. The Black Rock is an enormous boulder that marks a spot where the bones of 6,000 Irish men famine immigrants died in Montreal in 1847 um, because of the typhus that they had come down with on the ships. Now that rock um, was put up by the men building the Victoria Bridge. When they were digging the bridge, they found some bones and recognized them as being these survivors. And up until that point, somewhere in the 1870s, um no marker had been had been placed um on that on that massive grave. So they rolled up this boulder that they had found in the construction and put it up. And to this day that is the only marker of this great tragedy. But um the local Irish of town and it's it. It was a men's thing then, and now women, women do the walk too, but they would walk to the stone and have a, a religious ceremony in their memory. Now, when I, I was growing up, um, I lived and went to a school um, barely a mile away from that site of this huge tragedy, and I never heard anything about it in our history books, history classes, nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I always wondered about that. The little I knew was from the stories and traditions handed down to generations of Irish descendants. Um, so a lot of that was what uh, motivated me. So it was quite astounding to me to dig up all the stories from that summer of sorrow. Uh, the mayor of Montreal died. He went down to the fever sheds where they, they uh, place the sick, pe- the sick people. Um, most of whom died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't think of any other city or country that wouldn't mark that spot. Um, and at the time, the numbers are astounding. Some fifty thousand um, Irish immigrants landed in Montreal at that time. Um, backing up a bit, Griffintown was kind of. A landing spot, almost all the Irish who came to Canada in that century uh, came through the port of Montreal. Um, and then they would take, um, they, because the, the huge ships couldn't go up the St. Lawrence, so they'd have to transfer to smaller boats. So, uh, even most of the Irish um, who came and ended up in Ontario or points beyond would know, have known Griffintown and have passed through. So, that year, 1847, 50,000 Irish immigrants came through Montreal. At that time, the population of the city was fifty was 100,000. You can imagine now with this coronavirus, if we had, you know, the population, say, of Toronto is roughly GTA three millions, 3 million. We had a million and a half people coming through the city. <laughs> what that did to the city was incredible. Um, and yet, it was, until recent years, it was really I'm almost ignored um, and also digging out I realized that Griffintown well, has a lot of sentimental value for the Montreal Irish and for families like mine but in my research I found um, the people of Griffintown had an important political role they had um, for a time a balance of power and the struggle between the French and the British although it was very difficult and really time consuming it took me nearly five years of research to tease out the where the Irish were because they were always kind of lumped in with the British um, but the residents of Town uh, were critical to the election of Darcy McGee and eventually um, to the to confederation he made one one of his famous speeches um, to a crowd in the streets of Griffintown. Um and actually I, I discovered that um, the Irish produced some of the Canada's first terrorists, not, not that we should be too proud of that, <laughs> but um, Athenians who were a small group of fanatics devoted to liberating Ireland from the British crown. Um, tried to blow up the Parliament buildings in Ottawa in a misguided attempt to further the cause. Uh, happily, they um, they didn't blow up the Parliament buildings. They were <laughs> caught ahead of time. But a lot of the secret meetings were held in safe houses, and I found out in buildings in Griffintown that, that I knew later. And of course, there's um, more written about... The Lachine Canal was built through Griffin Town, and by a lot of residents of Griffin Town, the area was kind of this first industrial center. Sadly, um, Griffin Town, right now, has has been almost largely wiped out. And, uh, the destruction of the neighborhood began in earnest in 1960s. Me. As Montreal prepared for Expo 67, Mayor Drapo was can, determined to make, this, make the city look um, pristine. And he didn't—he uh, he was having constant political battles with Frank Hanley, our representative at the time. Anyway, I, Drapo seemed to use, to a lot of us, um, use Expo 67 as an excuse to wipe out Griffin Town. Monaventure expressway through right through the neighborhood cutting out that swath of the, about a third of the buildings went down. He also rezoned the um, district to industrial so and that prevented um, through some bylaws uh, any, um, any renovation of the building so gradually the housing stock began to deteriorate. People started to move out. Landlords would tear down buildings, and the area was left basically empty until, for a few decades, until roughly I guess in the early 2000s, um, it was rezoned again, and and developers seem to have been given free reign on and they've taken advantage of it because Griffithtown is ideally located it's immediately west or it could be south of it um, with the river get my direction a little mix up <laughs> Immediate, immediately next to old Montreal and immediately south of uh, downtown Montreal and Peel and Saint Catherine so it's an ideal location and um, they've left all the small streets intact but almost all of the old buildings which, which could have been renovated and added some charm like Toronto's Cabbage Town, like Vancouver's Gastown that's almost all gone and now it's just a um, sea of high rises and some of the high rises are fine but there's such a jumble of them and on the narrow streets and shadows and so if, like the like, the history has been, the site has been totally wiped out. And in another political move that's really angry the Irish community of Montreal, the city, is, the mayor has, has decided to name the, um, the station for a new LRT that's going through the city after um, a French separatist. You know, rather than naming it after Griffin Town, or perhaps maybe after the after um, the Irish famine immigrants he died, like there would be absolutely no Irish um, reference to this really colorful and important part of our history. Uh, as a, uh, the latest I heard was that the mayor had now saying, well, she might reconsider, but um, no, it's not that. And, and the marker, the Irish community has been fighting for um, a park mm-hmm. um, to honor these famine immigrants who died and also the memory of the Montreal residents who, who cared for them during that time. Um, and i already mentioned that this boulder now stands on a small traffic island in the middle of a six-lane freeway leading to the Victoria Bridge. (laughs) So you have to kind of take your life in your hands, you know, (laughs) stand near this bridge. And I go into my book too, there is a bit of history because that that rock proved to be quite inconvenient to some other plans for railways and bridges, and at one point, it was moved in the dead of night, so... People wouldn't see it being moved but it after some
0: efforts it was brought back closer to the spot <laughs> so that's that was that's Griffintown um, very
1: special place and it, um, yeah, it, it, it's yeah uh, it, it's got a special place in a lot of people's hearts um. And
0: you said you researched for five years on that one thing. How how long did it take overall to research everything?
1: Um. Well, what I started this project started um, when in two thousand and three. I had, as I said, I wanted to write this book since I was ten years old. But I kind of got waylaid, and I was I was writing for Macleans for many twenty years, and got caught up in the excitement of doing that as I got older, it was really nagging at me. So I, in 2003, March 2003, I wrote um, a cover story for Maclean's about Town. And um, a few months later, a publisher, a Collins editor, called and asked if I'd write like to write a book about the Irish. Now, at that time, I knew very little about the history of the Irish in Canada. So it was almost like almost like doing a master's degree really and I was very fortunate to find a mentor in uh, Professor Peter Toner now retired um, from the University of New Brunswick so he um, he led my research and helped me to gather all the information I needed from the Maritimes and uh, his specialty was Dorsey McGee so he was really helpful in, in in um, gathering the history. But I also wanted um, not to write a plain history book where this happened, that happened. I, I, had to, I wanted to dig really deep to get people's stories, to get anecdotes. Uh, so that meant um, I went to dozens of archives. I did um, over 60 um, oral history interviews So I, sta- I started in 2004, the book came out in 2010, although the last couple of years were uh, mostly um, editing and gathering photos. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, so a long time.
0: And uh, where can people uh, get it?
1: Get the book? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's available um, online through... Um, through indigo it's in uh, happily a number of bookstores still carry it uh, the hardcover is sold out but they're still still available in paperback